So Matthew chapter number seven, and uh, we've rounded the corner into the final chapter or of the Sermon on the Mount, at least. We've got a long ways to go in Matthew. Uh, we will pick up speed uh, once we get out of the Sermon on the Mount. I will, I will promise you that. So we won't be in Matthew for eight or nine years. Uh, I don't think so anyway. Um, so there's, there's some hope there. But uh, for a few more weeks, we'll, we'll continue to, to go at this snail's pace, maybe, and finish out the Sermon on the Mount. It's been really a joy. Um, I, was, I was reflecting earlier, uh, I get the privilege of, of studying this, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, putting, putting together a sermon, putting together an outline, thinking about it. And by the time I get here Sunday morning, I'm, you know, I'm ready to go. And uh, that may not be the case for some of you because you don't have the privilege of, of being paid to do that. So uh, maybe if I've seemed more excited about things, just, just give me some, you know, give me some grace. I, uh, I'm kind of immersed in it, but I hope some of the excitement and the joy comes across as we look at these things. And uh, Jesus' teaching, as we've seen in Matthew's, Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount, is all about the kingdom. Even before we started the Sermon on the Mount, we saw that where Jesus came and he began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as we look at the things within the Sermon on the Mount, what we're seeing really are, are kingdom things whether it's kingdom principles or kingdom ethics or, or kingdom instruction, they're all about that, including, and maybe most importantly, last week where we saw that call to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, to seek him first, and then all these things sort of fall under that. As we come into Matthew 7, we really have a good amount of teaching in this chapter about our perspective, and it's really about our perspective on others. How do we look at others? In the text we have for today, the first six verses, we have that famous call of Jesus not to judge, to judge not. When we get to verse number 12 in a couple weeks, we'll see really the best teaching there is on the golden rule. In other words, do unto others what you would have done unto you. How we look at others, how we treat others. And then finally, in, in, uh, in verse 15 and following, Jesus gives us a warning about others who are trying to do harm to the kingdom, namely the false teachers. So as we look at this perspective about others, how we treat others, how we view others, it's a kingdom perspective. It's a kingdom perspective. You have to keep that in mind. So what is the first kingdom perspective we come to in Matthew chapter 7? Well, the way I've titled it is the perspective of discernment versus condemnation. Or maybe we could just talk about it as discernment. And it has to do with those things as it relates to our human relationships. And specifically, as Jesus teaches, our relationships with our brothers and sisters. Now, possibly the call in Matthew 7-1 to judge not that might be the most often quoted scripture verse in the world. Now, it's normally quoted in the context of being able to do what you please without fear of repercussion. And the question that we ask as we approach the text, is the verse quoted normally in the right sense, in the right context, with the right understanding? Well, hopefully that's something that by studying this passage, we will be able to understand for ourselves so that we can apply it as Jesus intended. So we might know what Christ meant by it and not take the phrase blindly. Again, often when the phrase is quoted, 
It's quoted as an out or maybe an excuse to be able to go on living any kind of manner or way we would like to without fear of repercussion. And sometimes what happens is whenever a believer, a Christian, or the church makes some sort of statement about the common morality of the day, something that conflicts with the common morality of the day, the first reaction is, well, didn't Jesus teach not to judge? And in those cases, we must be able to give the right answer. We should be able to give an answer when that objection is made. Now, we don't want to give an answer that's hostile. We also don't want to give an answer that is sarcastic. But we also don't want to give an answer that would provide any false confidence. Now, one major obstacle to the common understanding, if we want to call it, of this passage is that the majority of people, Christians included, haven't really read the rest of the words in this paragraph, let alone in the Sermon on the Mount, let alone in Jesus' greater teachings in the gospel, let alone the entire context of his life and ministry in the scriptures. And I don't want to simply point outside the church and say, well, they're taking it out of context, because we often do the same thing as well. We must put in the effort to read his words, to read Jesus' words as he spoke them in their context, surrounded by his other teaching, to look at them as a whole, to look at his body of teaching, and most importantly, as we come to the scripture, to rely on the Holy Spirit to illuminate the truth. Now I have to admit, this is a challenging passage. Uh, I don't think it's so much challenging to understand but I do think it is quite challenging to apply and live well. Because of how well known or how, how broadly stated the, the principle to judge not is, because of that, we want to apply it well. We want to live it well. We want to apply it and live it in the way that Jesus intended. And in doing so, we want to avoid going off the other side of the road as well, into the other ditch, so to speak. And as we read down through the passage and study it, we will see that Jesus himself gives, a, himself gives us some barriers to avoid that. There's a way in which we can read this passage and apply it that would cause us to cower back, to, to keep to ourselves, to, to not love our brothers and sisters in the way that Jesus is commanding here, there's also a way we can read it and simply ignore it and go on doing what we would like to do. But we have to have the right perspective about our relationships among one another. We have to have a healthy view in what I would call a discerning view. A discerning view, but also a helpful view, as this passage calls for. So there's a sense in which we need discernment to understand discernment. Does that make any sense? Uh, my mind went to Romans 12 too. This is one of those places where we really need to rely on this, where Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Let us seek the Lord and his Holy Spirit as we look at this passage. So let's read the verses, and then we'll get into it. Matthew 7, beginning in verse number 1 says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. 
and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Here's the big idea for today, and hopefully we'll see this as we go down through the passage, and it's this. As followers of Jesus, we must be honest about our own sin before we can be helpful to our brothers and sisters. May we see clearly so we can be discerning and not merciless. And let us go to the Lord in prayer, because I need his help this morning, and I'm sure you do too. Father, thank you for these words. Thank you, Jesus, for your teaching. Lord, we need the Holy Spirit. There's no way that we can understand and apply these things well without the aid, without the help of the comforter, the help, the helper, the spirit who gives us understanding. So I uh, pray that we would rely on the Holy Spirit, yield to, to him this morning, and that we would trust you, God, to teach us that we might observe these things as followers of Jesus, what he has said and taught us, and we might point others to him as well through it. And again, that you would receive the praise and glory because of it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, firstly, as you're looking at your outline there, first thing we see is a statement against uncharitable condemnation, a statement against uncharitable condemnation. And the first and the big question that we ask as we come to this passage is, what does it mean to judge? What does it mean to judge? Well, the basic meaning of this word Jesus uses to judge is to form an opinion based on scrutiny. And uh, the issue, though, that we come to is the fact that this word, even in Scripture, even in Jesus' teachings, is used in many different ways. It's used in the sense of discernment. It's used in the sense of a law court type judgment. It's used in the sense of criticism. And also it's used in the sense of condemnation. Now, in knowing that word is used in all those different ways, we have a challenge right off the bat. Because in the very same passage, Jesus calls us to use our discernment. He doesn't use the word to speak of it, but the principle is certainly there, as we'll see in a few minutes. In verse 5, we need discernment to help pull the speck out of our brother's eye. In verse 6, we need discernment to know what is holy and unholy. Later on, we're going to see in verse 15, we need discernment to know who are false prophets. Now, we'll go into depth in all of all those things, either today or in the, the next coming weeks. Uh, but we have to make the observation that Jesus obviously isn't calling us to be blind or he's not calling us to a blind lack of discernment in our lives. So what is the sense of the word to judge here? Well, I mentioned discernment. I mentioned a law court. I mentioned criticism. I mentioned condemnation. Those are all ways in which this word judge is used. So let's think about a couple of those. If we think of it as the law court, well, we have a teaching there from Jesus earlier in the Sermon on the Mount about not living with an eye for an eye mentality. 
We don't get to retaliate when we're hurt. We don't get to lash out in anger when we're harmed. We are not the judge, jury, and executioner, so to speak, when we are wronged by others. That is God's job. So that is one sense in which we can surely say that we are to judge not. And what about the sense of criticism? Well, I think that, too, is a proper application of Jesus' words. And I think that's how Paul is using it and sort of applying it in Romans 14. We can't get into all this, the context here, but Romans 14:4, Paul says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. In this sense of judgment, we have to remember that we are all accountable to our true master, the Lord. A critical eye is usually an eye that is not looking in the right direction. A critical eye is an eye that is focused and intent on finding fault at any cost to the neglect of our own walk with Christ. So we're not to judge in the law court sense. We're not to judge in the sense of being needlessly critical and what about the, the sense of condemnation? Well, I think that's an easy one, honestly. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we are walking together as those of whom God says there is no condemnation. We are walking as those of whom God has given mercy and grace. As Paul says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if God does not condemn us, then who are we to condemn our brothers and sisters for their faults in that sense. You could think of condemn as sort of the ultimate judgment. It is the no turning back judgment. It's the equivalent of picking up a stone to cast it to end somebody's life. So we could say here that judgment in the sense that Jesus is teaching to judge not is a kind of judgment that is a critical, condemning, unmerciful judgment. It's a judgment that's unfair, a, a judgment that's above our pay grade, so to speak. And as we look at the second half of the verse, we begin to get some more clarity as well, because we are called to judge not that you be not judged. Now, often in Jesus' teachings, he gives us both sides of a coin so that we can understand the whole thing better by examining both. And I think this is one of those cases Whenever we set in to judge somebody in this sense, in a critical, condemning, or unfit way, we must remember that we ourselves are also subject to judgment. We must realize that when we open our mouths to judge in this sense, or when we set our minds to judge in this sense, we are accountable to that kind of scrutiny as well. Now, verse 2 really expands on that, so let's move ahead on to point number 2. The second thing is a reminder of our own condition, a reminder of our own condition. Jesus says, for with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Here we get that sense of, of a, a law court or a condemning judgment. It's a judgment that we pronounce. What we really get to here is the idea of a standard, of a scale, if we are willing to judge and condemn based on a certain standard, then we are also subject to that same standard. I want to give you a small illustration from life, and then I want to give you a big illustration from Scripture. First, a small illustration. My, uh, my tent-making job, so to speak, is I do finish carpentry. And uh, if I were to be working with a younger carpenter, as I usually do each week, 
And if I were to look at his work to examine it, something he's just finished and say, that looks horrible. There's huge gaps in the joints. You've, you've made huge dents with your hammer. You haven't sanded anything. It, it looks like a preschooler did it. Now that would be pretty harsh. It may be true, but it would be harsh. But let's take it a step further. Let's say that I, I made that assessment. I, I blasted uh, the individual for his work. And then I go to my task to do the things that I'm supposed to do in that moment, whether it's trimming something out, whatever it might be. And I do the same things that I've just blasted him for. What is he going to think then when after receiving that criticism from me, sees my work? Well, he's going to think, one, that I'm a hypocrite. Two, he's going to think that I'm critical and unfair, that I'm an uncharitable person. And that would be true. If I claim to know the high standard well enough to hold him accountable to it, then I am accountable to it as well. Now, that's a small illustration from life. But what about a bigger illustration from Scripture? Well, in John chapter 8, we find the account of the woman caught in adultery, and the interaction between Jesus and the men who brought the charges against her is helpful in this case. Let's read some of these verses. John 8, I'm going to pick it up in verse number 3. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? They said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, to read between the lines here a little bit, but what Jesus does is tremendous. He was in a pickle, or at least the scribes and Pharisees thought he was in a pickle here, because the Roman law prohibited the Jews from executing uh, this kind of judgment, from, from executing anyone in this sense. But their own law, as they said, had very strict pronouncements for this kind of sin. Now, the whole situation obviously is a sham because if they were really concerned about the weight of the offense, they would be equally as upset about the man who is also involved in the adultery. Now, when Jesus heard their accusation, when they asked him the question, they wanted to see what Jesus would say. They wanted to pit him against these two opposing opinions. Well, in his masterful way, he proved to them that they didn't have him in a gotcha moment after all. Now, he stooped down and wrote in the sand, and we don't know what he was writing. Um, I like to speculate, along with others, that maybe he was writing a list of all of their infractions and sins. We don't know. Regardless, when they pestered him more, what are you going to do? What will you say, master? He stood up and said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. I think in his action, Jesus was teaching this same principle. Are you going to be the judge? Are you going to condemn? Then, in the kingdom perspective, you are accountable to the same standard. And I think we're accountable in two ways. One is that when we take on this mentality, we open ourselves up to judgment and criticism from others. When we choose to take a critical and condemning attitude toward others, we must be willing to be examined. That's one sense, but maybe it's a smaller one, because second, we must remember that we are all accountable to God's judgment. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, we will all stand before God's judgment seat. 
He alone is the one who can judge in that way and remain righteous. He alone is the one with the authority to condemn. And maybe the call there is, may we never take God's job away from him in that sense. Now back to the illustration from John 8, because what happens next applies directly to our passage as well. Jesus once more bent down and wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, the scribes and Pharisees, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. When the accusers realized that they could not rightly stand in the place of the judge in that sense, they walked away. And Jesus said to the woman, neither do I condemn you. So there is one application of our passage. He didn't condemn her based on the testimony of these unworthy accusers. He showed her mercy, just like he told to us, blessed are the merciful. But he also said something else. He says to the woman, go and sin no more. And here is where there's a little bit of a rub. I think here is where a common interpretation of judge not comes up against Jesus' own life and ministry. You see, the common interpretation of judge not says that there is never a time to speak about sin. There's never a time to point out sin and error. There's never a time to acknowledge or admit that someone has gone against God's ways. But that's not at all what Jesus meant to judge not. Here, Jesus acknowledges that the woman had in fact sinned. But rather than condemning her, he showed her mercy. He showed her mercy and he bid her go and sin no more. We must not be harsh or critical or condemning, but we must be discerning. We must admit that sin is a problem. And that must begin with ourselves. Like the accusers of that woman, their own sins were enough to condemn them. They had judged her for the purpose of proving a point. And we do that. Don't we? Don't we sometimes point out, at least in our minds, the flaws of other people in order to bolster our own appearance of righteousness? May it never be. May we be discerning of sin, starting with and, and greatly the priority with ourselves. And Jesus teaches us that very thing with an illustration back in Matthew 7. So let's go back there, and we'll see the third part of this passage, which is an image of hypocrisy versus help. Look at verses 3 and 4. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? Now, this illustration is one of the reasons why I think that, that Jesus probably had a sense of humor. Uh, he uses hyperbole here, and hyperbole is often humorous. It gets the point across, but think of it. Here's a guy with an 8 by 8 beam sticking out of his head, and he's lumbering around, pun intended, trying to point out specks of sawdust in his brother's eyes. Now, that's hyperbole. It's, it's a big picture to make a, a big point. What is the illustration teaching? 
Well, one of the things it's teaching us is unless we examine ourselves, we do not have a correct perspective of our brothers and sisters. How can we pretend to see the sawdust if we don't even admit to seeing the beam in our own eye? And how much does that beam skew our vision? In this illustration, Jesus is pointing out a major human error, a tendency, and that is that we look with a magnifying glass, uh, more so a microscope, to find our brother's faults. But we avoid a mirror at all costs. We take great joy in finding any fault to point out in our brother. But we can't possibly imagine sometimes that we would have a fault of our own. Now, much of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount points out the dangers and the wickedness of the religious elite in that time in Israel. And like other passages, Jesus is speaking out against those who would hold others to such a standard that it is impossible to follow, yet inside of themselves, they're full of wickedness and unrighteousness. If we jump ahead to Matthew 23 for a minute, and uh, we'll get to this eventually, but by then you'll have forgotten we ever talked about it. So Matthew 23, I want to read a few samples from this. Matthew 23, starting in verse 23. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Again, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside may also be clean. Again, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You see how important true righteousness is to Jesus. It's not enough to be outwardly religious. It's not enough even to be a, a religious leader. It's not enough to have a religious heritage. There must be an inner reality, which is why we need Christ, which is why we need to repent and cast ourselves upon him. And he goes on back in Matthew 7 to say, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? Now, one way to apply this passage, which I, I believe is a wrong way, is to say that we should never be involved in helping remove the speck from our brother's eye. But a speck in the eye, it is a problem. If you've ever had a piece of something in your eye, you know it can be debilitating. It, it can be extremely frustrating. Helping take a speck out of your brother's eye is not a bad thing. We just can never hope to do it while we're blinded by our own willful ignorance of our own sin. Like Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. He was taking the speck out. He didn't hesitate to admit that, yes, she had sinned or that she has sin in general. And he didn't hesitate to tell her that she should stop. But his vision was clear. 
Now you might say, well, well, then only Jesus can see clearly enough to take the speck out of our eyes. We shouldn't be involved in that kind of thing. Well, even in this passage, Jesus has a couple things to say about that as well. We move on finally to a call for appropriate discernment. Look at verse number five. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. A call for appropriate discernment. Verse five is very helpful in our understanding of Jesus' intention because he could have said, take the log out of your own eye and don't worry about your brother. But he didn't say that. No, in fact, he said, one of the points of getting the log out of your own eye is so that you can see clearly to help your brother and sister. That's why I've titled the sermon, Discernment Versus Condemnation. Condemnation would say, look at that speck in your eye. There's no hope for you. I can't believe you can walk around in this world with that speck in your eye. Whereas discernment might say, listen, I've been there. I've had to take the log out of my own eye. Let me help you. Discernment would say, I love you enough to tell you that the speck in your eye is going to hurt you. Discernment might say, I care enough about you to tell you that you need to come to Christ for forgiveness, and he will forgive you. A couple passages came to mind here. One, very familiar, Galatians 6 verse, 6 verse 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now there it is. Some would say, well, it's, it's too judgmental to point out that somebody has a flaw, that they have a sin. It's too judgmental to, to get into that part of their life. But in love, we are called as Christ's followers to be ready to help our brother in their repentance and in their walk of faith. And that passage tells us that we're to keep a watch on our own selves, just like Jesus told us that we are first to remove the beam from our own eye. Another very fitting, I think, is Jude. Verses 22 and 23, where Jude says, Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Those things take discernment. Some may say, if somebody is doubting their faith, just leave them alone. It's none of your business. Jude tells us we are with clarity and grace to help to show mercy, to reach in and help. Now, if condemnation shoves down and casts a stone, mercy reaches down with a hand of kindness like that of Christ and says, I want to help you. I want to help you follow Jesus. So we are to be discerning first and foremost and mainly of our own sin, of our own failures. We must be honest about sin. Think of it this way. The kind of environment where Jesus' followers are consistently examining themselves and running back to Christ in repentance is not an environment of condemnation. It's an environment of help. Each person is aware. They are totally aware that we all are in need of God's grace, that we all need help removing a beam or a speck from our eye. When everyone is aware of that, it indicates an environment where agreeing with God about unrighteousness is normal. 
Jesus' teaching here does not belittle the seriousness of sin. Rather, it puts the call on all of us who claim to be his followers to take it seriously in our own lives. And then, and then alone, to help others as well. Not to criticize, not to condemn, not to belittle, but to help. Finally, in verse number six, Jesus gives one last call. And perhaps of all the words in this passage, these are the most balancing from verse one to verse six, but they're probably also the most difficult as well. Verse six says, do not give dogs what is holy. and Do not throw pearls before, your pig, before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and return to attack you. Now, if you were to read those words alone, we might say, wow, Jesus is really judgmental which is why we have to take verse number six in the context of verse number one through five, and we have to take verses one through five in the context of verse number six. Is this a disjointed verse? Does it not really fit? Does it not really flow? Well, I think it actually fits pretty well. I believe Jesus knew the tendency of his disciples would be to come out of one ditch and go right into another. Because we could say that if we're not to judge then nothing that anyone else does really matters. We shouldn't worry about what people say or do or believe or teach because we're only accountable for ourselves. Well, Jesus gives a clear statement here that we're not to have a blind eye to things that are dangerous. After all, the beam in our eye is what made us blind in the first place. But that is to be removed so we can see, be discerning, be helpful, in the right way. We don't have lots of time to, to talk about this, but a couple things. Dogs in Jesus' day were not, you know, poodles and Maltese and, and chihuahuas and pets. Uh, they were scavengers. They were wild. They were perhaps rabid if, if rabies existed. I haven't studied that. Uh, pigs were the picture of uncleanness in the mind of the Jewish person. And often the Jewish people would refer to to the Gentiles as dogs or pigs. Is that what Jesus is doing here? Is Jesus saying that his disciples shouldn't share in their holy things with the Gentiles? Well, obviously not, because Jesus' own ministry and the ministry of his apostles don't bear out that kind of attitude. Again, this is an instance where knowing both sides of the coin helps understand the whole thing. Look at what Jesus says we're to avoid. Don't give dogs what's holy. Don't throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Maybe one way of saying it is this. Jesus is telling us these kingdom principles, this kingdom truth, the gospel, the the kingdom itself, it's not going to be accepted by all. The holy things of the kingdom are not universally recognized, much like Paul says that the natural man does not understand the things of God. They're spiritually understood. So is is Jesus saying that the truth, the gospel, these teachings, these ethics are just for us and nobody else? Well, clearly not at all because we're somebody else. You and I would have been somebody else at one point. Jesus preached the gospel to all. His disciples preached the gospel to all. They shared these teachings with everyone where they went, wherever they went. 
And Jesus even turned from his own people to the Gentiles in doing so. There will be those who are hostile to the truth, hostile to the things of God's kingdom. The kingdom principles, the kingdom ethics, the gospel, which underpins it all, is not going to be naturally appealing to everyone. But we have to go a step further because it's not just those who simply reject that we're to watch out for. Because you never know when somebody will have their mind changed and turned by the Holy Spirit. It's not simply rejecting it that's we're to watch out for. It's in Jesus' illustration, it's those who trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Those who turn and lacerate, as another translation says. There were those in Jesus' day, and there are those in our day, who hearing and knowing the truth, do nothing with it but mock it, attack it, and use it as an excuse to attack Christ's church and his kingdom. I think it's to this kind of response that we might heed Jesus' warning. Now, it's not whole groups of people. Uh, Please do not take it in that sense. It's not specific groups of people. We cannot say there is a group of people in which it's not worth preaching the gospel to. That's not at all what he's saying. Jesus doesn't tell us who the dogs and the pigs are in this illustration. He simply tells us what their response might be, and he calls us to discernment. Not condemnation. We're not taking his job, but discernment. Now, does this bear out in Scripture? I think it does. I think it does. Let's look at some examples. I know we're going a little long today, but we want to get through this. Right in this own passage, or this own chapter, Matthew 7, Jesus says in verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. This is a call for that kind of discernment. Now, another example, I think, is when Jesus sends out his disciples to preach the gospel. In Matthew 10, verse 14, he gives them this instruction. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. This, I think, is a call for discernment in that sense. Now, what about others? Does it bear out in the rest of Scripture? Yes, it it does. Uh, Paul in Acts 18, this is a, a passage very similar. When Silas and Timothy arrived arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. This is an example of Paul doing that very thing. Galatians chapter 1. Paul says there in verse 8, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now those are strong words. They follow Jesus' teaching in Matthew 7 to use discernment. And it's not just with those outside the church. Paul used this kind of discernment within the church as well. Titus 3, verses 10 and 11, he he told Titus, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. One more example, 
This one from the Apostle John, in 2 John verses 10 and 11. He says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any good greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. John here was addressing the false teaching concerning who Jesus was and the Godhead, and he made that a point of distinction, a point of discernment. So Jesus, Paul, and John all call for this kind of discernment in various ways, both within the church concerning false teaching and those without who oppose and blaspheme the gospel and the truth as well. So where's the balance? We must not judge. It's not ours to condemn. We also must not be totally blind. It does matter what we believe. It does matter what we say and do. It does matter, ultimately, what we believe about Christ and who he is and the calls that he has made on our life to come to him. And that's why we need his grace. That's why we need the gospel. Not so we can be discern or not so that we can be condemning and, and live in a holier than thou attitude, but so that we can be discerning, see clearly, and help. So how can we apply all this? First, a few questions. Um, with Jesus' commandment about do not judge. Question, is there a positive motive to your criticism? Or do you criticize because it's just who we are? A step further, maybe, does our criticism turn to gossip or to slander? If so, turn from that and heed Christ's warnings. If we consistently think of and seek out what is wrong with others, but have a hard time being honest about our own sin, then we are what Jesus is describing here. Another question, have you, have I, have we examined ourselves and dealt honestly with our own life to the same degree with which we judge others? And what about verse six? It's a difficult verse, it really is. But a couple things. Do we take seriously the truth? Do we take seriously the, the mocking and the attacks on the truth? Do we find ourselves giving ear to it and telling ourselves, well, it's, it's just cultural. It's, I'll just let it slip. It's not going to matter. Or do we take seriously and jealously in a righteous sense the truth of Jesus and attacks on he and his kingdom? Do we take seriously the truths that the Bible teaches? Do we work to uphold that truth? And in a loving but firm way to deny the error. These six verses are a call to examine ourselves. Uh, they are a call to help others. They are a call to know that Christ is the one who can see clearly to remove our speck or our beam in our eye. It's a call to take Christ's teaching and his kingdom seriously and to be righteously jealous for the truth. As followers of Christ, we must be honest about our own sin before we can be helpful to our brothers and sisters. May we see clearly so that we can be discerning and not merciless. Let's bow for prayer.